0: A site that is geared towards writers says that if you want to have a brilliant idea for writing your first novel or short story, they recommend that you write about revenge. They say revenge is a story that always usually works, or it's easy to make work. It can work in any genre, and if many of you in here probably thought of some of your favorite movies, at least some of the more maybe exciting ones, especially if you maybe like westerns or crime movies, you think, yeah, revenge, it's beautiful in a dark way. It gives a plot. It gives motivations. We all like a good revenge story. And I think it's not just because it gives a compelling plot structure if you're the writing type, or it gives a good dynamic of just entertainment. I think we all like a good revenge story because most of us in here want revenge. And even though we may feel like as Christians, we know what Jesus says, it's like we want to see somebody else get to live out what we don't get to live out. Deep down, we want to punch back. We want to talk back. We want to get what is ours. And if Jesus isn't going to let us have it, maybe the movie will.
1: Maybe the story will. And so why, in theory and in our intellect, we may say,
0: yeah, 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 Jesus, our imaginations are cultivated by a love And if you're honest, even times,
1: a lust for vengeance. You are not alone. There's
0: a reason why such things sell broadly. And we may be like those who would deny that we would ever eat at McDonald's, even though billions are served. And I know some of you don't. But you may be sitting in here and saying, you deny that this is you. But as we walk through this text today, I think we will all find our place here because when people hurt us, we want to make them feel how they made us feel. We have a lot of different ways to do that, but we want people to feel it. We just think that's right, that's just, that it's wrong. And often we not only want to make other people feel how they made us feel, usually we want to add a little on to that. It's almost reflexive, subconscious, because it does shape the imagination we share as a people. And if the Sermon on the Mount is about anything, it's not just about this individualism. It's about a community ethic. It's about a way of being in the kingdom of God. Is Jesus coming into a world where we're shaped by this love and lust for vengeance in our imaginations? And He's saying, I want my people to be shaped by a different narrative. I want my people to have a love and a lust not for revenge, but a deep desire for grace to be the note that rings out the loudest in this story. And that is different, that is deeper. Because the story of God from first to last is not one where vengeance is the loudest note, but grace. And we are called in this text, ever how hard it may be, to choose to give grace instead of choosing to get even in our lives. We are called to choose to give grace instead of choosing to get even. Well, how do we do that? First way is we have to acknowledge the exciting, very exciting, and yet, Openly, by Jesus here, empty way of personal vengeance. So acknowledge the empty, exciting yet empty way of personal vengeance. Jesus, notice verse 38, is challenging the way that the law of God is being applied and taught among the people of Israel. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, Jesus, remember, we have to put this in context if you've not been here with us. He said in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, that He is not coming to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He is saying, "You do not." we're not saying throw away all that. Jesus is not here to say, Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Old Testament God mean, New Testament Jesus nice. Jesus said, no, that is not how you read the story. He's saying, Old Testament God, Old Testament law, good. Pharisees and scribes, who are the official, formal interpreters and teachers of that law, have missed the point. They're interpreting the law for their own advantages, for their own power, for their own positions. And so when Jesus says, "You've heard that it is said," he's not just saying, you, "You've read this in the Old Testament, but this is you're being taught this in a way that is wrong." This line, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you could find it in Exodus 21:24, 24, Leviticus 24:20, 24, 20, Deuteronomy 19:21, if you wanted to look at those. but in the context, it was always used within the realm of civil or public or governmental justice. And the purpose wasn't to have this attitude, it's where i got to make sure somebody gets what's coming to them. It was actually so that the punishment did not exceed the crime. Israel was to be distinct from the nations, and in the nations it wasn't just come back, it was come back harder. So if you steal something, we might kill you for it. You're like, wait a minute, that is excessive punishment. So in the civil or governmental system, it was to prevent severe retribution that did not fit the crime. But it also had a second point. It was to prevent self-appointed vigilante action. So this law was given within the civil system of Israel so people just didn't take the law into their own hands. So they just didn't go and kill somebody on their own because they wanted to or felt like they should. It was a way to restrain and to see that justice was brought about. So you may say, well, what what maybe is the problem here? Well, if you look back into the background and the history of this text, what Jesus is most likely pointing to, again, lots of debates on all these things, is that what the scribes and Pharisees had done is they had taken this law of God that was given to prevent... Self-appointed justice and self-appointed judges walking around and just like the the judge police. And they had made it into exactly that. They had taken this civil direction and brought it into their personal lives. They missed the point. God never wanted His people to walk around as self-appointed Judges, dealing out to everyone an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. John Stott says it this way, The scribes and the Pharisees evidently extended the principle of just retribution from the law courts where it belongs to the realm of personal relationships where it does not belong. They tried to use it to justify personal revenge, although even the Old Testament law, Quoting from the Old Testament law, it says, this is God, and the same God of that law, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people. Thus, this excellent, if stern principle of judicial retribution was being utilized as an excuse for the very thing it was instituted to abolish, namely, a culture of personal revenge. It's Mother's Day and one of the saddest things that that comes to my mind when I think about this is it's not Mother's Day for everyone, at least not in the way that that we might want to celebrate. I want to tell you another type of revenge story, the type that often doesn't excite us but I think is more likely in our world. Is I I know of a couple now older in their years, and I'm not going to say who they are, and I'm going to shape this story a little bit in a way that I hope is not dishonest, but to just get this camera looking at me, right? Anybody watch this and record it. So that's what I'm doing if I'm being weird. Is their daughter decided to marry a man that they did not approve of. And it hurt them deeply felt deeply disrespected by this decision. And so what they decided to do was to just say, you're dead to me. Revenge. You hurt me, you take away my dream of this family culture that they had, well now, we're done. Vengeance. And I guess you could say they won, right? You do that to me, I'll show you. You know who loses? Lots of people. Grandchildren who never met their grandparents. Great-grandchildren who never meet their grandparents.
1: Decades of no contact. I mean, that's not John Wick, but... Is that beautiful? If you think of most of the revenge
0: stories in your life, they're not exciting. It's not Clint Eastwood. It's not whoever it is that you like to see come back on somebody. It's brokenness, it's decades of bitterness and loneliness and hurt that grows and doesn't heal. Why is it so easy for us to think that personal retaliation is how we win? There's lots of reasons. When we look into our lives and into your stories and into your everyday lust for revenge, we, we've, we've got to ask the first question is like, what has happened to you in your life? That's not a belittling question, it's a real question. Probably somewhere along the way, a good desire for justice wasn't met. It happens every day. The bad guys win in real life. They often are the ones who get to tell the story of what happened and change the facts. The
1: justice systems can be corrupt at times. Who's going to stand up for you? I mean, you got to think, right? They can take everything else, but I'm not going to let them take my pride. And my pride means I got to fight back. There's times in your story where you had no voice.
0: Where there may have been a law, but it seemed like the loophole's always won.
1: So, who else is going to give it to them if you don't? That person who's always getting away with it at work? That person who's always getting away with it in church? I mean, it seems like you're just going to have to play their game if you're going to win. So we say this around
0: here a lot. It's said a lot other places. It's not new to us. Hurt people, hurt
1: people. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So if we don't want to live as if personal
0: retaliation is the way. I mean, it's exciting, right? It gets, your, it gets your adrenaline flow and it gets your imagination going to some real weird places, if you're like me. Real weird places of revenge. It can be exciting, but in the end, in real life, it usually ends up empty. So every one of us in here, we need to answer this question, whether you do it right now. I'm, I'm being serious. I don't ever like to tell anybody what to do if you know me. I'm going to tell you to do this. Sometime today, well, it's Mother's Day this week, you've got to answer this question How do I get even with people? Because you all do it. All of us in here do it. I know I do. Figure out and be real clear How do I get even with people? Some of you in here may feel like I don't, I'm just a doormat, I have no power. You got your ways. There's the active ways, right, where you come back hard. I get, if somebody hurts me, I'm going to be angry at them. If, if, if they've disrupted my peace, I'm going to disrupt their peace. But there's also passive ways that we don't often think about in terms of vengeance. But there's that cold shoulder, right? Okay, you didn't, you didn't give me what I wanted, so here's how I'm going to get back with you. You made me feel distant, I'm going to make you feel distant. There's, there's checking out. Okay, you hurt me, I will just not respond to you anymore. Lots of other passive ways. But we all in here have got to figure that out. We've got to have the humility to say, I do this. And sometimes we don't know it. It's how we've lived our whole lives. It may not even be conscious. And you need to find a close friend that you can say, hey, how do you think I get even with people when they don't give me what I want? Or when they hurt me. That's going to take some bravery, some courage. Maybe ask your mom today if you have that type of relationship with her. How did you see me getting even with my siblings? Or with you? That might be a good conversation for tomorrow, too. That would ruin your mother's day, probably. But then you need to ask, is how did that work? Did that lead lead to greater love in my life? Was there reconciliation? Was there peace? Would somebody look at how I deal with hurt and pain and insult and injury to me and would they say, man, that's different than the world. That's the kingdom of God. I have some jobless friends, and one thing that they pride themselves on is they don't take anything from anybody at work.
1: and yet they're homeless. But they don't take anything off anybody at work. And I say that not to condemn, but to invite all of us to look into the mirror.
0: Look at your relational history. Could it be that some of that brokenness wasn't just about you telling the truth? It wasn't just about your noble intentions? for a just relationship,
1: but it was about you getting even. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We got to
0: get tired of that. If you're not exhausted by it already, Jesus wants you to say, tired of that. And so this is what he's calling us here. Is not just to acknowledge the exciting yet empty path of personal retaliation, but also in verses 39 through 42, to accept the very hard and yet very hopeful way of giving grace. It's hard. It's hard to believe. I mean, what in the world is going on here? Notice verse 39. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist
1: the one who is evil. What? What? And what Jesus is
0: not saying here, again, we've got to understand this within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus here is trying to form our kingdom imagination that is shaped by a different story than the vengeful stories of the world. He's not saying that justice doesn't matter or that equal justice is wrong. Again, there are and should be good laws for just penalties and protections. We could go throughout the whole Bible and show how that's supported not only in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. We will see Jesus stands up for Himself, not in ways of retaliating personal revenge, but yes, He will drive them out of the temple when they are defaming the place of God. But He's not doing it to save face. It's actually going to cause Him to get slapped in the face. Again, He's not coming to abolish these things. But He's saying this is not to be the reflex and reaction of my people in the stuff of everyday life. He's saying grace, not retaliation, is to be your guide. And he's wanting the Spirit of God to so shape us into the fruits of those spirits so that our flinch and our reflex is not, you hurt me, I hurt you. But when you hurt me, now grace. Again, one commentator just summarizes this. Don't be a vengeful, vigilante, self-justified distributor
1: of justice. That is not your role in your personal relationships. Don't give yourself the badge of the justice police in your personal relationships. Give that to God.
0: We're going to flesh that out a little. Jesus says these extreme things to get a reaction out of us. And if you're not getting a reaction from that, maybe you're
1: not hearing it right. Give grace in your dealings. And grace is not indifference. This is what is so
0: challenging about what Jesus is saying here. Notice again verse 39 when he says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forced you to go one mile, go too. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse from the one who bother you. It's like this is not... Just indifference, like leave them alone, it's love them. It's hard enough to just leave them alone, right? I mean like, Jesus, I didn't punch them in the throat when I wanted to. And
1: now you actually
0: want me to love them. We're going to talk more about this next, well not next week, in a couple weeks when we get to love your enemy. it's just you could read that passage now, but this is the call. Not to mere indifference, but to love. Not to ignore justice, but in our personal dealings to underline grace. Again, John Stott says, someone robs you, you might call the police, but fix a cup of coffee for them while the police are on their way. Let grace, not vengeance, take over your moral imagination. Don't resist the evil one. Again, what is this saying? It's don't use violence to resist evil. It's saying don't play their game. Don't get down on their level. The backhanded slap is what this insult was, this slap on the cheek. It wasn't just somebody provoking a fight. But in this honor and shame culture of the ancient Near East, it was, it was, it was an embarrassment.
1: It was somebody calling you out. And Jesus says, instead of you slapping right back,
0: is that you're going to stay there and you're going to open yourself up to further insults. This lawsuit where if they sue you for your tunic, let them have your cloak also. Again, this isn't isn't like walking out of here coming out with a theology of how to handle lawsuits. No, the person would have had these two articles of clothing. They would have had their tunic and they would have had their cloak. It's basically saying, if they sue you for your tunic, let them have your cloak. Allow them to basically take everything, and you're standing there naked and ashamed.
1: The forced mile.
0: Jesus here is most likely referring to the fact that quite often Roman soldiers would force an Israelite, to go with them a mile and to carry their equipment. And there was actually a law that said the Romans could only do it for a mile. You can only force them to do it for you one mile. And Jesus says, if this oppressive foreign government asks you to do that for one mile, I want you to go too.
1: People wanting to borrow from you.
0: Again, in this context where he's saying like this this is annoying. This sets you up in a position to look weak. That's what all these are about. It's when people put you in a situation to look weak. Humiliation, embarrassment, taking advantage of you. Your reflex is not I'm going to get even. Your reflex is, is I'm going to give grace. And we could illustrate this in many different ways in our history, and, but I'm going to go with, with one that I, I love, and, and that's Jackie Robinson. April 15th, I think, was Jackie Robinson Day. And if you don't know who Jackie Robinson was, he's the first African-American professional baseball player because horrifically in the history of our country, African-Americans were not allowed to play professional baseball at one time. They had their own leagues, and Branch Rickey, who was the manager or owner of the Dodgers, wanted to bring him onto their team. Now, he's really not the hero of this story. Jackie Robinson is. We get to debate his motives all day long. He wanted to win. But he wasn't looking for a player just with talent. There were lots of those in the Negro Leagues, as it was called at that time. He was looking someone with the drive to push through oppression, which was there. Who could remain cool under incredibly intense pressure and hatred. So he brought Jackie Robinson in for an interview and he began to ask him if he knew I was there. And Robinson thought he did. He just wanted him to play for a new Negro League team. But Branch Rickey said, No, I want you to play for the Dodgers. But what he then did really upset Jackie Robinson. He told the young player that he wasn't sure if Jackie Robinson had the guts to make it in the professional leagues. Now, he thought he was talking about his skills and was upset. He was angered, he said, because nobody had ever questioned his guts before. But before he could respond, Branch Rickey clarified that what he was looking for was the guts, someone to have the guts to not fight back. Because the unfair accusation that was made against African-Americans was that they didn't have the temperament to play in the major leagues, that they would be easily angered, lose their temper, and cause fights. That was the horrible and unfair stereotype. So if an African-American were to make it, supposedly at least this I read, and who knows if these stories are altogether true, Branch Rickey then quoted the very text we're reading this morning to him. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So Jackie Robinson himself in his autobiography called I Never Had It Made said that he looked at him and said, Oh, I've got two cheeks, Mr. Rickey, is that it? And he vowed to do everything in his power to ignore the hatred and racism he would face to prove that African Americans belonged in the game of baseball. So he went through a hate-filled spring training in 1946. But it went, and he uh, got to play in a more accepting environment for a while, but they ended up playing the Phillies. They had a manager named Ben Chapman, and Chapman was from Alabama. He was known for his bigotry. He had actually played for the Yankees in the 1930s, but was traded after he made Nazi salutes to the fans that he perceived to be Jewish. So every time Jackie Robinson stepped into the batter's box, Chapman would verbally assault him with hate-filled attacks.
1: The most horrible things that I, I can't even read in here,
0: they were so vulgar, Robinson said, that even the segregationists in the crowds were growing uncomfortable. So Robinson says he began to lose his composure and he started to think to himself... Forget Mr. Ricky's experiment. Forget the image of a patient black freak I was supposed to create, his words. I could throw down my bat, stride over to that Philly's dugout and grab one of those white sons, you can fill in the blank, smash his teeth in with my despised black fist, and then I could walk away from it all. But then Jackie Robinson says he remembered his promise to turn the other cheek. He refused to fight back or to say a word or even look in the direction of the dugout. He simply played baseball that day. And as he did that, as this guy is hurling insults and he stands there and plays his game, says even segregationists watched Robinson that day and they saw him do something they doubted that they could have done themselves. They saw bravery, courage, and a strength that deserved admiration and respect. And it didn't change everybody's hearts, but it did touch a lot of people's hearts. It says that fans who walked into Ebbets Field that day booing
1: Robinson by the end of that game were cheering him. Who had the power at the end of that game? He did. Was it hard? I can't even imagine how hard that would be, and I'm not going to pretend to. But does it give us all hope here still to this day? You better believe it. Jesus is not saying here, don't feel anything.
0: Somebody smacks you, stuff your emotions. He's not saying that. Jesus is not saying here, call evil good and good evil. Jesus is saying here, don't ever not protect yourself. Jesus is saying, don't get lost in all the thousands of the whatabouts we could come up with right now, but be shaped in your heart by this way of my wisdom in your personal relationships that is not the way of weakness, but it's the way of the upside-down kingdom who through your grace, now the story changes and the power actually shifts. At least in kingdom terms and what matters in your hands. And what we're not saying Jesus is doing here, some would say, Well, Pastor, because you're not saying this means that we shouldn't have, you know, some people would say this is like a t- Jesus saying, don't, don't have justice even in the courts. Not that he's against justice, but he would just say there's no retribution, there's no retaliation. And while that can be debated and certainly has in the history of the church. This is not watering down Jesus' message by saying get be people of grace in your personal relationships. At all. You could argue it's harder because there's some people who are all about justice in this world who are the most vengeful people in their personal relationships. Whether you're watching it on social media, whether you're dealing it with in your everyday life, You're talking to somebody who's all about justice and you think you are the most mean person in real life. Why would I ever trust you to speak for me in this issue? Now I think Jesus is being more radical. Here's how radical He's being, I believe. My daughter yells at me. You know what I do?
1: guess. I'm going to yell back and get louder. Why? She doesn't do that much, but I do that. It's because I don't want to be disrespected. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Someone in a missional community
0: snaps back at you and you snap back? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I mean, any healing, any love going on? Someone in your fight club or your relationships doesn't pursue you and you want to be pursued, and so what do you do? I'm just going to check out on the relationship. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Someone stabs you in the back at work so they can get ahead? You're just sitting back waiting for your chance. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Someone on social media hurts your feelings? Well, you can block them, you can subtweet them, subpost them, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Mother's Day, maybe your mom's really hurt you or a child's really hurt you. And so you, maybe you can use this day in some way to just get a little jab or a little stab in there. This is the realm Jesus is working in in this sermon. The stuff of everyday life. He cares about justice. But His kingdom is about so much more than just what we might consider the big things. It's about being a different kind of people. When we're invited to resist, we don't respond with violence. When we're insulted, we don't
1: insult back. When we're humiliated, we don't humiliate back. It's a different way. We've got to accept the exciting way
0: of vengeance is empty and we've got to walk in this way, but how do we do that? I mean, if
1: you're like me, it's like, Lord, help. The good news is we have help. The
0: last thing we have to do to To make any sense of this is we've got to affirm that the only way to live this way is Jesus living this way for us first. It is the only way. We need His example, but we need His substitution as well. And He, the Son of God, will come. He came and He refused to take justice into His own hands. It is mind-blowing the way He was treated in His life. And he could have crushed everybody who opposed him, who humiliated him, who misunderstood him, who called him a blasphemer, who told him he was crazy, he was
1: demon-possessed, he was out of his mind.
0: But he lived by grace and not personal retaliation. He died by grace. This is what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7 where it says this servant of the Lord would come who would give his back to those who strikes, who his cheeks would be given to those who would pull out the beard. The servant of the Lord says, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. I mean, being slapped is one thing. You ever been spat at?
1: I think me and my brothers did that to each other as kids, and big fights ensued. And
0: yet, of the servant of the Lord, the next verse says, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know I shall not be put to shame. He trusted justice into the hands of the Lord. Yes, you may spit on me, you may embarrass me, you may humiliate me, but I give myself to the Lord and I know I will not be put to shame. Jesus was slapped. It was no mere prophecy. Matthew 26, 67, it says, they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. And what did he do? He turned the cheek. He didn't run and hide like a coward. He stood in there. He said, I am the Son of God. I'm not going to quit speaking truth to power, but I'm not responding with the force and violence that you would have me. He was taken to court and His body was given to be stripped. They want See, Jesus is not calling us here to something. He did not live for us. They're going to take your tunic. They're going to take your cloak. Well, He hangs on the cross naked and it says, and when they had crucified Him, they divided His garments among them by casting lots. He hanged there naked for us even though He could have called a legion of angels
1: to rescue. He was forced
0: Maybe not to go a mile, but to carry His cross. We know Simon the Cyrene would pick up that cross at some point on the journey, but John
1: 19.17 says that Jesus went out bearing His own cross. He bore it willingly. And as for generosity from those who have no way to pay us back,
0: as He hangs there by a thief or an insurrectionist, and he asked for forgiveness. When this guy can't go do anything for Jesus now, he's dying. And what does Jesus do? He looks at him and he says
1: in Luke 23, 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is our story. He's not asking
0: us to do anything he didn't do for us first.
1: But the gospel
0: doesn't end in his humiliation on the cross. The gospel then goes to his resurrection, the vindication of God that is promised to all those who unite ourselves in with Jesus, that justice will come, that vindication will arrive, and the One who is risen is the One who one day will return. And as the church has been quoting from the earliest days in the Apostles' Creed, He will come again to judge the living or the quick and the dead. He will do it for us. We have in Jesus' person and work something that no other theory, psychology, or religion has, but that they all long for, justice and grace. In an article in Psychology Today, when they're trying to, to, to talk about forgiveness and grace, this person says, what I'm suggesting is a version of turn the other cheek, taking from the Sermon on the Mount yet still doing everything to preserve what's important to you. The hard part, though, they say, is watching someone get away with something when there's nothing you can do about. Like your wife leaves you for the yoga instructor. Or your colleague sells you out. And so this person says, with situations like that in life, I take solace in the notion of karma. That sooner or later, what comes around goes around. And also know that your best revenge... Sometimes it's you just going out and being happy in the face of your enemies. Give me a break. Really? Tell that that vision of karma to all these people who go to their abusers' funeral and they're celebrated. Tell that vision of karma to all the people, even in the history of our country, who were enslaved and oppressed and and they just lived wonderful happy lives until they died. Tell that when people did try to clap back and did try to take revenge, the people in the positions of power were so in control of the narrative
1: and the story, they just made them look like they were crazy people. We don't we have something that
0: can give us the ability to live with grace. We have the cross and the resurrection and the return of Jesus. When you see somebody who lives a life of constant revenge and personal retaliation, I'm not saying they don't understand the gospel, but it's not went all the way down yet because they don't believe that God really is a just judge who's going to set everything right in the end and so they don't have to do it right now in their personal relationships who can speak the truth and yet
1: not have to get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In Romans 12,
0: 14-21, Paul says this before he goes into this chapter in Romans 13 where he talks about how the governments of the world have been given by God's design to to execute justice, even pagan ones. By God's common grace, God has instituted that hoping that there would be just societies. But leading up to that, and there were no chapter revisions in in these original texts and letters, this is what is said to them and to us, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sight. Then he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. We will only be able to trust God's justice and also give God's grace to the extent that we know the way of Jesus is our only hope.
1: And that's going to take a lot of faith and some hard moments.
0: But as Peter says, and I'm quoting all these passages because I know how hard this is, and if y'all walk out of here with anything, I want you walking out of here wrestling with the Word of God. 1 Peter 2, 21-25, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Not by you wounding other people for wounding you. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer
1: of your souls. Can you imagine a people who lived this out?
0: Can you imagine this being the culture, and it is to a large extent, but the growing culture of our church, in our missional communities, in our fight clubs, as we are all sent into our everyday places of work? Can you imagine how this would lead to opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with people? In a dog eat dog world, you're stepping in there with grace. You're stepping in there, you're going to get mocked, right? You're going to turn that other cheek and you're going to stay there and people are going to say, that's weak, that's a weak sauce right there. You don't stand up for yourself, nobody will. And you're going to stand in there like Jackie Robinson, but even more, you're going to stand in there like Jesus. And as you keep doing that, that vicious cycle of retaliation that our world runs off can be broken. And it won't be leading to you being the hero of the story. It'll be leading to you saying something like, yeah, I wanted to punch him. But let me tell you about the one who when I punched him didn't punch back at me. Let me tell you about the one who my sins nailed to a tree and yet he said, Father, forgive them. Let me tell you about Jesus who chose to give grace instead of choosing to get even with me. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus who has come to change everything in this creation, especially us. And as we come now to the table, may we remember that. As we leave from this day, may you shape our imaginations. May you shape the way that we view our opportunities
1: for retaliations. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.